All right, so this is my favorite guitar. When I first like brought it in this morning, like the team's like, are you playing today? And I'm like, no, I'm just using this as an illustration. This is my favorite guitar, it's a Taylor guitar. And I wanna share with you very briefly the story of how I came about getting this guitar because I did not purchase it. It was given to me. This is one of my most treasured possessions. You know, if you ever hear that scenario, I hear it's a lot in like, um, in like the school setting. Like if, if your house was on fire and you had the opportunity to run into your home and grab one thing, what would it be? For me, it would be this. This is what I say every single time in those meetings. I received this as a gift back when I was a worship intern while I was in college. It's that old. It's getting close to 20 years old that I've had this guitar. We had a deacon here years ago who was also a musician. And I share that with you that this man who gave this to me was a deacon of, of this church to remind us that the office of a deacon is far more than being the church handyman. This guy was not a handyman. He was a trainer for a corporation, a very big corporation, and he was a musician, but he was also a deacon. To be a deacon means so much more than just doing things with your hands. It's about coming alongside pastors and church leaders to support. So one day he had me over, him and his wife had me over. They lived on Lake Thanodasasa, this beautiful, gorgeous setting. And um, the, the second floor of their room, they, of their house, they had this like open kind of patio. We had dinner. And then after dinner, we, we, just, we just jammed together. And back then, I remember with my extra scholarship money going to USF, <laughs> I bought myself a Takamini guitar for $250. And that guitar went with me all over the world. It went to Mexico. It went to Australia. It went to Ireland leading worship. So I'll never forget. So we had dinner. We're jamming. And I'm packing up my tack. And he goes, no, no, give that to me. And he was playing this guitar, and he goes, this is yours now. And I was just like, what? Like, what? As a college kid interning at a church making only $15,000 a year, I never would have had the ability or the opportunity to buy a guitar like this. I had the Income of, okay, when scholarship money is left over, I'll buy myself a $250 guitar. That's kind of where I started financially. I had to be given things because I couldn't be able to afford this for myself. I was blown away. Clearly, this guitar is more valuable than the $250 Takamini that I previously had. He gave this to me, and I, and I gave him my old tack, which he still has to this day. So the question we have to ask is, why would this man give me such an expensive guitar? It's because God created his heart in the ultimate sense. It isn't culture, it isn't family upbringing. It's God that shapes the heart. And God had given him a heart of generosity. And he displayed it in that moment. He displayed it to this church for years while he was here serving as a deacon. He was an example of generosity. Giving this guitar to me was an extension, not just of his heart of generosity, but it was an extension of his heart for God. You see, for this deacon, God was more valuable than wealth. God was more valuable than this Taylor guitar. Now, fast forward to... Several years later, I'm not just a worship intern anymore. 
on the worship leader of this church. And this church grew so much, and several of you still remember this, that we outgrew the worship space here, and we began to meet in the cafeteria of Heritage Elementary. And it was kind of crazy on Fridays. You know, I spent my Friday nights. Some of you guys go out to dinner. You go to this, that, or the other. I spend Friday nights setting up service, setting up speakers, setting up sound areas, setting up chairs, getting everything ready. That's my Friday nights for that whole season. Sunday comes around, lead worship, I pack up, and I'm walking towards the um, exterior doors to go to the parking lot to leave, and there's these kind of big mats at the door, and I go and step on that mat, and I slip. And this is already packed up in my heart shell, and my, the full weight of this body of mine lands on this guitar, and this happens. You see that? Someone say no. Okay. Okay. William, you already know this. This weight, the weight of this worship leader completely fell upon this guitar and it absorbed it. In the eyes of the world now, if I were to take this to a music store and ask if I could sell it, this would be worthless. Right? It's clearly damaged. It has fallen. It is broken. And it's not restored. Yet, I value this guitar still today more than any other musical instrument that I own. The question is, why? Well, you know why. Because of what this represents in my story, that a deacon would invest in me when I was just a college kid. And this was the form. This was the shape of his investments. But the world says that this guitar has little to no value. And you know what? The world also says that God, our Lord Jesus, has little to no value. But nonetheless, God is creator, and he is redeemer, he is sustainer, and he is king. The world devalues God much more than this guitar in who he is, in what he says, in what he does. But the pressing question that I want to invade your space with today is this. What about you? What about you? How do you value God versus what he says about himself? Is there a disconnect? Is there a gulf between how you view God and what he says about himself? One, that's step one today. And then step two today is to see that is the very wisdom of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that whatever that gap is, that he spans that gap. And he does that by his life, his death, his resurrection, and his return. Jesus taught us that his kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. We've looked at that on a recent Wednesday night. When this man saw this treasure that was just buried in a field, something awakened in him. Theologically, we call this regeneration. He sold all of his current possessions because he considered that whatever that treasure was that was hidden in the field was infinitely more valuable than the sum total of his riches, his wealth. Some would call this man foolish. And many today would call you foolish for being here and opening your ears and opening your eyes and opening your heart to consider what the timeless scriptures have to still say to you today. But as Christians, and we know this deep down, for those of us who had this experience, we are okay 
with people considering us to be foolish, right? I'm okay being a fool for Christ. My point is this. God is that treasure hidden in the field. God is that tailor, not literally. Today, Solomon gives the call for you to value God above wealth. And in order for you to truly value God above wealth, it all goes back to Proverbs 1, verse 7. You must fear the Lord. That the beginning of all of this, of a truly wise and satisfying life, is you truly fearing God more than the honor and the weight and the value to give to yourself and anybody else in this world. If God is not number one, you are going to reject everything that he says and find some excuse for why your life is okay being your life right now. That should reveal that you don't fear the Lord, that there is this gap between how you view God versus what God says about himself. And just because you're religious and in our congregation today does not necessitate that you currently fear the Lord. That's where we're going today. Let's get to our proposition. Through Solomon today, we're going to see that God will eternally satisfy. This is where we end today. Can't wait. He will eternally satisfy those who treasure him above earthly wealth. Solomon's wisdom matches Jesus' teaching. His kingdom is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. You don't find it. You stumble upon it one day, and it changes you, awakens something in you. And wealth means nothing now to you in comparison to the treasure that is Jesus. Today we'll see Solomon's call to you, which we're going to do. The call today is for you to compare all that you are trying to amass for yourself, all that you are trying to stockpile for yourself, and compare it with what God has done for you in Jesus. And we have a very visual comparison today because this is the mark. This is the sign of all that God has done for you in Jesus. Let's compare that to the bank account, how you're slaving for yourself at work, the sacrifices you make in putting God to the side so you can do X, Y, or Z. How do those things compare with this thing? That's the point. That's what Solomon wants us to do today. And then we'll see Solomon conclude, and I'll call on you to conclude, that godly wisdom is infinitely superior, better than earthly wealth. And then we'll see that the promise of God in Proverbs isn't merely to satisfy the Christian here and now. you got to remember Proverbs acknowledges the beauty and the brokenness of this life. It is not naive saying it's all rainbows and sunshine and sprinkles. We know there is pain, intense pain in this life, intense hurt in this life. God satisfies his people eternally because Solomon says wisdom is a tree of life. And we'll get to what that means in a couple minutes. Jesus says it this way. To the woman at the well, he says, I am living water. And I'm living water in such a way that it creates something in you. This well that springs up over time to eternal life. So that's where we're going today. Let's get started with point one. In our opening verses, the call of Solomon is for you to compare the eternal profit of godly wisdom to temporary earthly wealth. First, you must bring to mind who penned this proverb. That's why we're very strategic and defensive 
that the people that the church and archaeology and history have said wrote these books of the Bible are these people because it loses the ethos. It loses the authority. It loses the humanity of things. This is King Solomon who penned Proverbs 3. King of Jerusalem, most influential, powerful, richest king of the world during this time. To where the queen of Sheba, a competing rival, power, authority, influence, and wealth, would come and sit underneath this man for wisdom. That's how powerful Solomon is. Look at the conclusion this king, with all earthly riches, said about life. Let's take a look at verse 13. He says, how blessed is the man who amasses riches like me? Oh, no. He doesn't say that. How blessed is the man who slave drives time and time again for more and more money? No. He says, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding? Solomon says that the one who finds wisdom and then gains understanding is blessed. Now, Conclusion number one is this. Solomon found and gained both wealth and wisdom in this life. So we can say, your life is not my life, Solomon, because you had the riches. Of course you can say that, that wisdom is better. You had it, and I don't. But which one does he write about to tell Jewish boys and Jewish girls all the way to you still today in 21st century Branchton, what does he tell that truly made him feel blessed, made him feel content and satisfied, truly happy in the soul. It was wisdom, not influence, not power, not romance, and certainly not wealth. And he had them all. Solomon experienced all of these things, but he elevates godly wisdom above earthly wealth. Now, for a moment, I want you to compare the prophet of godly wisdom against earthly wealth. Listen to Solomon's claim about wisdom right here in verse 14. He says that her prophet is better than the prophet of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. Solomon says, base level, there is profit in wisdom, and there is profit in silver. He's not naive, right? There is a profit to silver. Solomon says there is a gain to wisdom, and there is gain to gold. He had it. He knows. Both wisdom and wealth have its profits and gains. But you need to think back to verse 9. And if you have your Bible open, you can not just think back to it, but you can look at it. Solomon called on you last week through verse 9 to honor the Lord from your wealth. This is true wisdom. Foolishness is to dishonor God from your wealth. And we spoke about that God's view of wealth must be weightier. It must be more valuable than your view on wealth. But nonetheless, wealth has gains and it has profits. You are among the richest people on this planet. I'm going to say that one more time. You are among the richest people on your planet, on this planet. 
Now, internally, you're pushing back already. I see it. You don't believe this to be true because you live in America and you haven't traveled to the world. You haven't seen ghettos. You haven't seen real tragedy and real poverty. You live in America. So you, consider, you compare yourself to the rich of America. But compared to 90% of the world, you are the wealthy one. And I've said this time and time again. The world's churches, if they were to come to Branchton, they would say, you are rich. Look at all that you have. Look at these buildings. Look at this land. Look at the meals you get to eat. You are wealthy. You are among the richest comparatively in this world. Wealth has a weight. Wealth has a value. But the question you must answer for yourself is this. Will I give greater weight, greater value to God in my life over myself and over wealth? Will it have greater value in your life than God? The answer to these questions, I think, really does determine if you are a Christian or if you are religious. The old Latin word for religious just means things that bind people together. That's why I don't believe there's any such thing as agnosticism or atheism. Because religion is just a term of things that bind people together with each other. You go brunching every single Sunday instead of going to church, that's your religio in Latin. That's what binds you together to people. Let's take a look at verse 15 now. Solomon says, she's more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. Solomon is clear yet again. Jewels are precious, right? To say that wisdom is more precious than jewels implies that jewels are precious. The question is, do you view jewels as more precious than God? Is it jewels or is it wisdom? So after making these comparisons to silver, gold, and jewels, to wisdom, Solomon concludes, nothing you desire compares with you, right? I've been thinking about that song all week, all week. To be wise, you must start by realizing you are a fool. To be wise in this life, you must begin by saying you are a fool. In like vein, to be a Christian begins by acknowledging that you have fallen short, that you are broken, and you are still breaking, and you are breaking things. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be wise, you start by realizing that you are a fool about wealth. The way to wisdom begins when you acknowledge that there are other things in this life that are a higher value, a higher priority than God himself. Solomon acknowledges that a desire for wealth competes with a desire for godly wisdom. And if he was the richest man in the 11th century B.C., if he was the richest man, this necessitates that he knows the temptation of wealth even greater than you do, because he had it. To be a Christian, to be growing in wisdom, you acknowledge, therefore, you say to God, God, my desires are out of order. 
It's this, 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 then you. But the gospel does this. And this is why I love Augustine. He says that the gospel reorganizes your desires. It's sex, wealth, family, influence, social outings. And then if there's any time left, it's God. Augustine felt it too. But he read the book of Romans and God reordered his desires. Wisdom is seeing God as the only one that can reorder your desires. One of the desires that may compete with God today in your life is your desire to control your own life. You need to be in power. Now, here's the thing. Religion can help you with that. Being religious can help you maintain an aura of control in your life. That's why people come to church, even still today. In a sense, religion can make you feel good about yourself if you desire control. Because religion brings order to your life. What do you do on Sundays at 1045? You come to church. What do you do on Wednesdays at 630? You come to church, right? When it's Christmas time, what do we do? We build shoe boxes for needy children around the world. And that makes you feel good about your life. Now, I'm not discounting that there are things that you do in community with this church that should have some sort of intrinsic reward for you. I'm not discounting that. What I'm discounting is making those things major and doing those things so that you feel in control of your life. If this is you, Christianity and the gospel, true preaching and teaching of Christ's word is going to challenge your desire for control. So what will you do in that moment then? What will you do? Which way will you think is better? Your control, your ways, or God's control and God's ways? Your answer to this question demonstrates if Jesus is that treasure hidden in the field. If he truly is your all-surpassing value. Or whether you truly desire something else. Solomon's conclusion, already in chapter 3 of Proverbs, is that nothing that you desire Romance, control, silver, gold, or jewels compares to God and his word. Now, if you don't believe the son, you need to listen to the father. I want you to listen to how King David put this. Psalm 19, 7 and verse 10. David himself says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. Then here it is. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And you know how much your pastor loves honey. And freshly baked bread and butter all combined. David's claim is even better than that. That is God's word, God's wisdom. King David, King Solomon, father and son united because God the father, God the son is united on this. Wisdom, biblical wisdom is far more valuable to you than wealth. God in his word, the wisdom he grows in us is more desirable than anything. 
It restores the soul. It makes the simple wise. It's more desirable than gold, and it is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. That's why David concludes in Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it may be today that you don't think the Lord is good because you taste the world more than you taste his word. It may be. Because you can be religious and not truly be a Christian. David and Solomon had wealth in the finest of foods, and they believed this about life. So what about you? What about you today? Jesus told his disciples, and we looked at this last Wednesday night, and I told you, we got to get to the rich young ruler because of today. Jesus told his disciples, after his interaction with the rich young ruler, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Why is this? It's because... Like this rich young ruler, if you set your ultimate value, your ultimate security and wealth above God, you will not see God as that treasure. You'll see your savings account as your treasure. Wealth is now your God. And Jesus was clear, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters. You will love one and you'll despise the other. Jesus said, and we looked at it, that it's easier. You too, sir. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a person who sets wealth as their God to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said on Wednesday that it is impossible. And I was very poignant with you on Wednesday that I wish this was translated differently. Remember that? Because this isn't about possibility. This is about power. And I showed you the word that Jesus used for impossible, dynamite, pure power. You can breathe, church. It's okay. The disciples hear all of this, and they ask Jesus, if this is true about life and about wealth, who can be saved, right? Just like right after Jesus retaught the focus about marriage and how sex binds and sex breaks marriage. Sex outside of marriage breaks your real relationships. The disciples also ask, who can be saved then if this is true? Highlight the social, sexual promiscuity of first century Palestine, and they were religious. Jesus responds and says, in your own power, in your own control, it is impossible. Only God has the power to change you about your views of sex and your views of wealth and your views of what is truly valuable and what you are going to set as your most prized possession. Only God can do that. I can't do it. This is our hope, though, right? God is infinitely more valuable because he has greater power than wealth. Wealth only deepens and it only worsens what is already present inside of you. So wealth doing this in your life or wealth doing this in your life, it's only going to draw out the worst in you. That's Jesus' teaching. It's only going to deepen what is already in you, for those of you who need encouragement. Because there are many people, you get more wealth and you give more away. Right? This is awesome. Because wealth only reveals what is already there. So wealth can't change you. Only God can. The hope is this. God is still at work 30 centuries after 
Solomon wrote this. To resurrect and to restore all that you lost in Adam and Eve. When they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they lost something. And in Adam and Eve, you lost something too. That's why whether you're an agnostic, an atheist, you're religious, or a Christian, you know that deep down something is wrong with life. It's not a unique Christian idea because we are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and we know this life is not right. When they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they lost access to another tree. And Solomon turns his focus to that tree in our second set of verses. So let's jump into point two. In point two, Solomon wants you to consider the gain of godly wealth. And he wants you to consider it to be better than earthly wealth. Let's see how he goes there. The view that Solomon wants you to embrace today is that gaining godly wisdom is better than gaining earthly wealth. Solomon is not telling you to shun wealth. Just like in our Hard Sayings series, when Jesus told people to sell all that they have to the poor and come follow me, he's not calling the Christians to a destitute life of poverty. Both Solomon and Jesus are telling you to truly love and fear the Lord. He has to be ultimate and not wealth. And what you do with it, how you give or how you hoard, shows if you fear God. So for a moment, let's consider again the gains of wisdom. Look at verse 16. Solomon says that long life are in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman, and I pray that one day I am at heritage long enough that I get to do a teaching series through Proverbs. Can you imagine Wednesday nights with Proverbs? And I get to tell you the significance of all the metaphors that Solomon could use in Hebrew culture where a woman's worth meant nothing to personify something as grand as wisdom as a woman. He is doing something that history books in this culture tells you actually does not happen with religion. Religion suppresses women. Why would Solomon personify the greatest thing in their culture as a woman then? Right? I wish I could teach on it. We'll get there maybe one day. I will say next Sunday, in the following Sunday, when we look at Proverbs 31, you'll get a little bit of it. But it's going to be preaching, not dialogue and discussion and teaching. Lady Wisdom has something in her right hand and in her left hand. In her right hand is long life, and her left hand are riches and honor. The point is that Lady Wisdom holds real life, and it's right here. Lady Wisdom holds real riches, and it's right here. It is in her grasp. And then we'll start seeing after this that there's two women who call to you, the one of adultery and the one of wisdom. And they both say, come to me, come to me, come into me. But Lady Wisdom says, come to me because I got real life right here. I got real riches and real honor right here. Come to me. The point is Lady Wisdom holds what is real and lasting in this life, and wealth does not. So don't set it as ultimate. Solomon has already told us how the Christian, how God becomes the refreshment and the security of the Christian. That was last time. It happens when they fear the Lord, when they honor the Lord. 
Solomon is personifying all of this right now by comparing wisdom to a woman. There is greater gain with Lady Wisdom because she offers eternal life and eternal security. Verse 17, he continues and says that her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. Lady Wisdom travels this life on certain paths and certain ways. And Solomon says that the way that Lady Wisdom takes is always pleasant. It is a delight. It is satisfying. And then Solomon tells us that Lady Wisdom's paths are peace. Now, if you are Hebrew, you're a young Jewish boy or a young Jewish girl, and you're learning Proverbs for the first time, and you hear the Hebrew word for peace, your eyes are going to get big. You hear shalem or shalom in our culture, your ears perk up because this is one of the highest ideals and pursuits for a young Hebrew man or woman is peace. Think about this for a moment. The life of the Hebrew has been one of war and adversity until Solomon. Generation after generation of slavery in Egypt that would make the African slave trade look like a day in the park. They experienced war in Palestine as they fought to resettle the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They continued to fight against the Philistines and other city-states that were rising up in the land that God promised to their forefathers. This continued through the reign of David. If you're still reading the Bible through the year with us, you're reading these things right now. And then Solomon comes. And Solomon is the wisest and richest king that this planet has ever seen. And for Solomon's reign, the country was at rest. It was at peace. It was united, and it was whole. Then he has kids, passes it on, and then it's divided. And then exile and slavery again. That's a story for a different time. Earthly kingdoms, even Solomon's kingdom, is finite. And as you know, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. But you may not know this, but Solomon's very name, the name that David and Bathsheba gave to Solomon, its very roots is Salem. You can almost hear how Salomon could sound like Salem, which is really the Hebrew word for peace. David saw this boy after losing a boy with Bathsheba, he sees this baby boy and calls him peace. And God uses this baby boy to create a small period of peace to point to what the real king of Jerusalem, Jesus our Lord, and the real peace that he will give to us eternally in his kingdom. Solomon trusted in God's wisdom, and that is a gain of godly wealth. It gives you rest while the rest of the world is raging after wealth. But in verse 18, our final verse, we find my favorite reason why godly wisdom is better than earthly wealth. Listen to Solomon here. Wisdom, lady wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who hold her fast. What is Solomon doing right now? He's mixing metaphors. My wife gets on to me all the time. I mix metaphors all the time. So maybe I'm just being like Solomon. She rolled her eyes. Yes. Wisdom is a lady. 
And now wisdom is a tree. Specifically, though, Solomon calls Lady Wisdom the tree of life. This is inescapable, right? Okay, you see it? For a Hebrew, once again, this proverb, you are learning this proverb for the first time as a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl, your eyes are going to get big right here. You're going to perk up a little bit while the Jewish scholars are teaching you this. And you should still too today. In Genesis 2, Moses tells us that there wasn't just one named tree, but two named trees in the Garden of Eden. One was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other was called the tree of life. God gave Adam and Eve full and unrestricted access to all things in the garden except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This means that Adam and Eve had unrestricted access to the tree of life. And they didn't want it. You wonder why you don't want God's wisdom? Because you are Adam and Eve's daughter. And you are Adam and Eve's son. But there is a greater Adam that comes into you that can change your desires and reorder them. So God is number one. And not your pursuit of romance and feeling good about yourself. Because a man makes you feel good physically. Adam and Eve had unrestricted access to the tree of life. They could take hold of its fruit whenever they wanted it, but Eve did not desire the tree of life, did she? Moses tells us that she desired the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after Adam and Eve ate from this fruit, God expelled them from the garden. And we no longer read about the tree of life in the Jewish scriptures until here. 11th century before Christ in Proverbs 3. They lost access to the tree of life. You lost access to the tree of life. And that is why Adam and Eve died. And that's why you died. Because you don't have access to the tree of life. Solomon says that wisdom is that tree of life. There are only three places in all of the Jewish and Christian Old and New Testament, where the tree of life is mentioned. Genesis, Proverbs, and guess where else? Going all the way to the end of the stage to signify, like literally, Revelation 22. Beginning of the Bible, sprinkling in Proverbs, silence until the very last chapters of the Bible. Vernon before church pulls me aside and says, you know you have to mention eschatology to every single sermon, right? Well, I said, well, coincidentally enough today, we get a little bit of it. In those final chapters of Revelation, Jesus allows John to witness what eternity is like. Eternity will take place on a renewed earth. On this renewed earth, the tree of life is present again. And renewed people, resurrected people, have access to this tree of life again. They haven't had it since Adam and Eve. And now they have access to it. Christians gain access to this tree of life again because of Jesus. Because Jesus, as the second Adam, did what Adam could not do. Say no to the evil one. 
The tree of life is restored to a renewed humanity on a renewed earth. And Solomon says, wisdom is that tree. So what's the gain? What's the gain of all of this? Eternity is gain for those who value God and his word above all. His wisdom is the tree of life. Biblical wisdom is life-giving all the way to eternal life. All who gain godly wisdom, who take hold of the tree of life, is happy. Now, this is about contentment. Not about getting more endorphins in you through visual stimuli or physical stimuli. That's just chemical manipulation. This is about real contentment, soul contentment. In Philippians, in Paul's wisdom that God gave to him, Paul spoke about that he could experience contentment in all things. That's really what Philippians 4.13 means, that I can, be, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Before that, Paul's like, I have learned to be content in poverty and in riches. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Holding on to wisdom as your treasure hidden in the field, as your all-surpassing value, will make you content in this life and then eternally happy in the next. Now that you've heard Solomon's call to value God above wealth, Let's see if the New Testament and Jesus and Paul are consistent with Solomon. And we will find in a moment that, yes, they are consistent because the Bible, though it's 66 books, it has one message. Though it's many, it is one. Just like the church, who are many but are one, right? Okay. Matthew 16, 26. Listen to Jesus. He asks, what will it profit you, O man, O woman, to gain the whole world, and to forfeit your soul. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Oscar Wilde, oh my goodness, Oscar Wilde. He made a deal with the devil through Dorian Gray, is how we read it. He wanted vanity, illustrated in the mirror. The mirror contained all of his sins and all of his horrors, and he still looked young and beautiful. Even Oscar Wilde, who was not even a theist, could see that at the end, all mirrors break. All beauty is vain. We'll get to that next week, ladies, in Proverbs 31, right? Yes. Jesus asks you, what profit is there for you to gain the whole world? All of its riches, all of its value, and yet you forfeit your soul at the end, at the eschaton. Do you see it? Wealth has a value, heritage. It does. And we are to be wise stewards of it. It is a tool to unleash God's heart in this world. But it's not more valuable than in your soul. Wealth is temporary. Your soul is eternal. Worldly values, earthly wealth cannot profit your soul. Only God can profit your soul. Now let's listen to Paul. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Paul says, whatever things were gain to me, were a profit to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He gets even stronger. More than that, I count all things to be loss. How, Paul? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Wealth, Jesus. You see that? For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and then look at the strength of this. And count them but rubbish 
so that I may gain Christ. It's clear. Paul considers earthly gains and he compares them to the all-surpassing value that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he counts all earthly gains as loss in comparison. And he's really strong with this. He counts them but rubbish, refuse, dung. And ESP just tries to lighten it up a little bit. He considers it as dung when it's up against Jesus. You will not give God more weight, more value than wealth if you don't fear God. Today can be the start of fearing God for you. And you begin by praying, God, before I ever see wealth rightly, I need to see you rightly. So Jesus, be my clear picture of what God is like. Put me in a position and a posture to see you as I should. And over time, remember words and actions over time that we talk about in members meetings? Over time, God will grow that prayer in you. And over time, you will give God and his voice more weight, more value than you give yourself. All right, Heritage, after today, we shift to the many topics that Solomon and the other wisdom writers discuss in Proverbs. But here's the thing. If God is not weightier than you, if God is not weightier than all of your other relationships, all your other values, if he isn't the all-surpassing value, when we hit womanhood next week, you're going to reject Solomon's wisdom. If you do not fear the Lord, all of the topics we're looking at through the rest of summer, you are going to reject it. If you do not fear God, you will hear Jesus' word and you will not act on it. You will build a life on sand and one day, maybe not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year, but your house will fall. A catastrophic fall. Because the wise and the foolish both will experience the rains and the winds and the floods of this life. But only one foundation will stand and that is the foundation that is established for us in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.